Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's Friday, June the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Jack Horgan-Jones and Jennifer Bray from our political staff. Hello to you both. Good afternoon. Hello, Hugh. There's a huge story this week. On the face of it, people might think it's not a political story, but I think it is a political story. RTE made a very significant announcement on Thursday, Jen, about uh, Ryan Tuberty and its financial arrangements with him. And there's been little else going on in, certainly in media gossip land, but also in on the front of today's newspapers and across the airwaves. Yeah, so I think the context of the story is that in early, in around 2020, obviously Orti has been in financial crisis mode for, for years, really. But they announced that they would reduce the fees paid to their top presenters. I think it was around 15%. Um, and, you know, that's the context around this Tuberty story. Um, so this story kind of blew me sideways yesterday. I did not expect this. And I, I, I at first was kind of struggled to get my head around what actually happened here. So we know that... Ryan Tuberty had published earnings in 2021 of around 466,000, which would have been an 11% reduction on uh, the 2019 earnings. Um, What we've actually learned was that there was an agreement that he had on top of his pay, which saw him guarantee this additional income of 75,000 euro. Um, And this was intended to come from a commercial partner. Now, this fee was guaranteed and underwritten by RTE. Um, in July 2020, Tuberty received 75000 from the commercial partner. And the deal was that he would, uh, this would be an exchange for personal uh, appearances, effectively. Orti issued a credit note, I think, under that. The commercial partner didn't review the agreement for a second year, but because it was underwritten, effectively, by RTE, the payment was still made um, by Orti to Ryan Tuberty's agent. And that was recorded in Orti's accounts. So there's a sum there, for, I think it's around 115 Thousand. Now, Orti carried out a review um, of the previously reported pay then from 2017, 2019. And I think it, long and the short of it is that it seems his remuneration was understated by around €120,000. Now, breaking news, like just before we came onto the podcast, is that D Forbes' uh, director general was suspended as of Wednesday. So this uh, scandal, I will call it that because I think it, that's how it's being perceived, certainly in the political world uh, is growing. Um, and there's a lot of questions, Hugh, around who knew what, uh, what did the board know, um, how did this unfold and, and how did this happen? There's a lot in there, Jack. Uh, just to go into maybe a couple of the nitty gritty details before we look at the at the broader implications. We're told that this payment was rooted towards through something called a barter account, not something I'm aware of, but according to RTE, it's common practice in the worlds of advertising and marketing. And as far as I can see, it's a way of moving around, sort of, you know, exchanging quid pro quos uh, for cash and being able to adjust one's budget in one way or another. So in relation to this, and I see from a 
report and one one source that the uh, the company involved uh, in the 2020 to 2022 agreement was Renault Ireland that they would pay this amount into this barter account and then that that sum they would be reimbursed that sum or essentially that sum would form part of their overall commercial deal with um with RT. All sounds a bit ropey to me to begin with, uh, to be honest. But the more important thing is that RT then failed to make that clear in something which it's required to do every year, which is to inform the public and the Oroctus of how much it pays its top 10 best remunerated presenters. It failed to do that. Whether you describe that as concealing it or not uh, remains to be seen. But I think RTE itself acknowledges that this is a very grave breach of trust. Yeah, and to to dwell on the politics for a moment, um, I think part of the reason that this is objectively a political story is that it just meets the threshold of size it's just an enormous story and when things get that big they inevitably become political that's part of it but the other part of it is that as you outline there is a direct reporting relationship between RTE the national broadcaster the minister responsible the government uh, as informed by the minister and the Oireachtas, as informed by RTE, through um, primarily the the uh, the media committee, which is chaired by Neve Smith, uh, and you know RTE made reduction in the pay or reductions in the pay of their top earners part of the branding and part of the communications and part of the kind of self congratulatory tone that they would have taken when they went in front of that committee and informed them about all the important reforms that they had achieved. Um, including uh, including reductions in the in the earnings of their top paid presenters, because that is a lightning rod issue, not only for the government and the Oireachtas, but for the, the population writ large. It has become a kind of byword for excess within RTE and, in, and the, you know, the indulgences of the, the national broadcaster and, you know, their capacity to spend money on themselves. And, you know, the question underlying it was always, how come we pay these people so much? You know, what what is their market worth and has that ever been established? And I'm not sure that anyone has ever really disclosed the existence of a formula underpinning what these people are paid or even if one exists. But certainly it's it's always been an angle of attack for RTE. So therefore, showing that they were getting that under control was a big part of them showing the showing the Oireachtas, the government and the public that, you know, the organization was capable of sound uh, financial management and self-governance and therefore uh, deserving of some of the big pieces of reform which it was seeking most notably and most importantly, the ongoing, uh, you know, generations old struggle over the license fee model and how RT was funded and their desire for a fundamental overhaul of that, uh, something which the uh, the current government has held the line on. Uh, the only recommendation of the uh, the report of the Commission on, on the Future of the Media, which, which was published last year and given to government with 50 recommendations, the only one that wasn't accepted was one that they should replace the license fee with the general taxation model. So this has become a bone of contention between the government and RTE, um, which led to nasty exchanges last year. Moya Doherty writing to the Taoiseach of the day, Michael Martin, saying that he'd, he'd undermined uh, the broadcaster by failing to adopt that that recommendation, uh, letters that were published in the Irish Times latterly. And this this kind of, you know, the this scandal, as Jennifer correctly 
identifies it now plays into that wider um that wider relationship that RTE has with all the different stakeholders who have a rightful interest in how it conducts its affair its affairs and i would think for the next i mean for the next generation holds below the waterline any hope that it might have of uh, achieving its goals with regard to to you know reform in its favor of the relationship between the state the national broadcaster and the market we should say that, that Moya Doherty, who you referred to there, stepped down as chair of the RT board last autumn and she was replaced by Shunni Rahali, who has was on the media yesterday evening talking about where this is at right now. And Dee Forbes, um, who you mentioned, Jen, has been suspended, but her her uh, contract of employment with, with RTE ends in only about two and a half weeks time on the on the 10th of July so there's going to be further questions probably about about account accountability there I mean I've written a little bit about this myself um this morning and this whole business of the um as RT have often seen it if you talk to people in there privately this prurient obsession with uh with presenters fees uh, and I've had some sympathy with this for the past because RT has a lot of you know Big issues to um, to face up to, and some of them are more important actually uh, than these fees. Although Jack's quite right when he says the question of what you know, who decides the market rate, and how do they how do they accommodate that is an absolutely valid one. They used to be much higher. I think Tubity at one point was making seven hundred and fifty thousand euro or there thereabouts a year, or at least that was what was being reported then. We might find out that it was more now. Now that this can of worms um, has been opened, but in a way, I suppose to be fair to the people who were harping on about these fees, um, it wasn't just about jealousy because it was a way of um, crystallising what is on the face of but partly symbolic because it's a really public thing. These famous people are being paid lots of money out of the public purse. But it also represents, I think, an ongoing unease about RTE, which you hear in the political sphere and elsewhere, which is that it's facing huge problems and its management team isn't up to it. And I think that sort of that sort of comes back into the frame now again. It does, it does. And I think you hit on a couple of really interesting things there. Notably, I think you mentioned this idea that there's an obsession, you know, with RTE stars pay. I personally think that if you are, um, well, the vast majority of people in Ireland, I know there's an evasion, right? But if you're paying an, a, a TV licence fee, which you're obliged to pay, um, if you have a television, and now obviously the conversation is even for people who don't have a television, of course you're going to want to know uh where that money is going uh, and and how it's being accounted for. Um, and for me, like I never got this feeling in RT. I never understood when people got angry or annoyed at the media because we, you know, publish their their salaries or their, their fees because people are interested and they have a right to know because we're paying a licence fee. We're not talking about a private media company here. We're not talking about the Irish Times, which is run by a trust. It's completely different. Um, so that's the first thing I would say about that. Um, there's a really interesting point there around the balance between RTE being this public facing, you know, uh, news organisation, um, public service broadcaster, and then the commercial element, I think, which you, you touched on as well. And then thirdly, Jack touched on this, is is trust. Um, Sinead Crowley, um, RTE's um, arts and media correspondent, had a really interesting piece this morning. I don't know whether you had a chance to have a read of it. And she's talking about how Trust is one of the most, if not the central part of Orti's relationship with the audience. And she points out that the word is right there on the website, that the, the mission of Orti is to nurture trust, to be fair and open about the decision it makes and be accountable to the public. And this does not chime with that mission. I mean, straight up, it does not. Um, 
And, you know, I think the trust is being shattered realistically. Um, and I think that this story, far from being kind of flash in the pan overnight, I think this will really grow legs. Um, and if you actually look at the political reaction this morning, some really, really strong statements out from different politicians. I know Fine Gael's uh, Kieran Cannon had a statement that he said it was astonishing. And he, the question he posed was, how could they let this go on for so long and why? Um, and it was a, and, and he was saying it's a breach of oversight. And I think that the the political side of this will only intensify. Um, I would not be surprised, I'd say it's already happened, that politicians who are on the Oireachtas committee that deals with this media committee will seek to call in, now obviously Dee Forbes, as we said, um, or to a statement out saying she's been suspended as of Wednesday. Um, I don't know who takes, you know, over in the breach of of, uh, of of her suspension, but I imagine they will want to haul RTE in before politicians and get to the bottom of this. I think we're only at the start of this story. Although another question will be asked, what about the rest of the presenters? And uh, as far as I know, and Jack um, can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think they also did a review into the other top 10 highest earning presenters. And as far as I know, no such similar issues have been found. But I'd say, given everything we've learned, that's another thing politicians will want to delve into. They'll want to see the detail. Jack, is that they've done an internal review of those presenters, but they haven't done the full uh, external uh, Grant Thornton review, which has happened with, with Ryan Tuberty's payments. So that remains to be seen. But I suppose what, what we're getting from RTE at the moment, and uh, as Jen says, trust has been damaged. What we're getting from RTE is there's no sign that this was a widespread practice across all the presenters, but we just have to wait and see on that. Well, yeah, and... It's important to note that it's it's an internal investigation. Uh, and so the, the Audit and Risk Committee appointed Grant Thornton to look into this matter when it emerged in March. And what we have is basically the, the first phase of those findings, which have now become public. There is a second phase ongoing, which consists of the external review of the other top 10, as we've said, and also a look into the other Tuberty payments, the 2017 to 2019 payments, which as I understand it, only emerged at a late stage of that first phase. They were basically checking their work and they said, well, are we happy that everything uh, in previous years um, was done in line with our understanding? And the answer came back, well, there was also these other payments. So they're still, they're still establishing what the story is with those other payments and, and you know, what the impetus for them was. And that will form part of, of the, the other Grant Thornton phase two report when it comes in. I mean, this this is is so far from a flash in the pan story. This is going to be one of the stories of the summer. Now, it is going to be an intense uh, period of scrutiny for the national broadcaster, where the challenge and the controversy will morph and change, and everything that it does and everything that emanates from it will now be subject to enormous scrutiny. Like it may, it doesn't even necessarily have to be Ryan Tuberty adjacent or his pay adjacent. I think that. And I don't know whether any perks exist for high profile people, but if they do, if there are any benefits in kind, any relationships, relationships with sponsors. I mean, these are the kind of questions that are now going to be emerging. And I think there will be a demand for those questions to be answered and scrutinized. Next week, as I understand it, there is likely to be, uh, or if not next week, then very soon, there is likely to be a report on uh, you know, the, the workplace culture of RTE, which has been sought by a reporter in RTE themselves, um, an internal report into workplace culture, which RTE has refused to release, and the Office of the Information Commissioner has now ruled that it must be be released, and that's going to that's going to come out shortly. That is going to get thrown into the maelstrom of this. There is going to be an outstanding question over whether 
whether Brian Tuberty resumes his his uh, his radio show uh, when Kevin Backhurst obviously doesn't come in until the middle of next of next month, I think it is. So you just have this kind of rhythm of news announcements emanating about RTE, which is just going to give this enormous legs. And I think that the evidence, just a very a very brief and, and discreet example of you know how the organisation I think may to an extent be in a bit of a tailspin on this. The evidence is that they they're not necessarily handling this well day to day. So yesterday, they we we were asking, what is the story with D Forbes? And they would not mention her name because presumably there is a HR um, process underway there, and people get very afraid of HR processes when it comes to public disclosures. Today, they put out a statement saying that she's suspended. Now, what has fundamentally changed between yesterday and today, other than the pressure was growing and growing and growing, and then they cracked? So that suggests that perhaps they're not wargaming this well enough, even a day into, a, in, into the future, you know, that they don't have their ducks in a row, they're not thinking about this strategically. And this kind of pressure is something that they're going to have to get used to. And just to kind of finally cover this off, um, you know, when you have something like this, um, when you have the disclosure of an arrangement like that, which existed between Ryan Tuberty and RTE, I think it begs profound questions of confidence from the government as a stakeholder, as a shareholder in an organization. Not, you know, necessarily that this arrangement exists, but that it could exist. The extent to which things like it may also exist. And there's an ongoing question, or I think there, I wouldn't be surprised to see an emerging question, of the government's confidence in RTE. You know, and, and whether this is an organization that can be trusted to kind of run itself. Uh, and I think that that is a thread that may well emerge over the weeks and months to come, to be honest. It's, 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 it's an enormous thing. It reminds me, without drawing any parallel necessarily between the individuals involved or what they, what they may or may not have done, but it reminds me a little bit of, you know, when we started to see under the hood at, at, at the FAI a few years ago and it just became this enormous unraveling story. Uh, again, like that's, I'm, I'm making the comparison as, you know, the types of media stories that they are and how they may evolve as opposed to any direct comparison between the circumstances in the two organisations. But that's the kind of direction that I think we're going in. Indeed, the other thing that strikes me is somebody who has written on and off about media in Ireland and, and RTE over, over more years than I care to remember, Janet. It, it highlights an issue which I've always run up against here, which is the fact that, I mean, you referred to these people being paid from the licence fee, but that it has a joint funding model um, and that it's partly it's partly funded by, um, by the licence fee and via the state and it's partly funded by commercial revenue. And the response one always got to these questions about why are you paying these people so much was because they generated income. They generated sponsorship and advertising. And we've heard a lot over the last few months, and especially about the Late Late Show with Ryan Tuberty's departure about how valuable it is as a source of income to RT. And I've always found it difficult when trying to dig into these things. You run up against a bit of a brick wall with what is called RTE commercial enterprises, which seems to be, a, well, is a semi-autonomous unit within a semi-state body, which operates, um, it seems clear to me, by different rules and in a way that is borne out by the reference to these barter accounts being common in the world of advertising and marketing. They're not common in most state-run organisations, are they? They're not, no, they're not common at all. State run, otherwise, well, I could tell you, I'm not getting 75,000 euro tops of, top ups from the Irish Times. Much more than that. But if the editor is listening, I would fully welcome it. No, um, you're right, like there's a, there's a whole issue there and there's an opaqueness as well. Um, and you said, Hugh, you've been writing about this for years, you know, and, and similarly, I've written about it plenty in the past, particularly in relation to RTE, and you always come up against this thing, well, this is a commercial arrangement, 
Um, and getting information about that is very, very difficult. Um, and now we're kind of seeing, I think this is the start of the, I wouldn't say floodgates, but I'd say the start of the opening of an actual wider conversation about that. You know, how does this work? How can you justify not answering legitimate questions that you would have put down through the years? Um, and, and, and that is a major, major aspect of the story. And like I said, we're, we're really only at the, at the very start of it. Um, another point I would like to make, um, I suppose, something that struck me when I was thinking about this this morning, and I would say that, I'd say there's honestly a lot of people maybe listening to this podcast or who've been reading those stories who, who might think the same. Um, I, I I find it very surprising. I think that, like, let's let's start with this. Let's take Ryan Tuberty's statement and I'll only read out a section of it, okay? Because it's actually not that long, but I'll, I'll just read out this section. Um, this is a statement from um, NK Management. And they say, these are matters for which RTE has sole responsibility and accountability. Uh, there is no issue whatsoever in relation to the payments being properly and lawfully due. And there is no suggestion of any wrongdoing on the part of Ryan Tuberty or NK Management. And this is the important part. These issues are solely concerned with RTE's internal accounting treatment and public declarations in respect of such lawful payments. Okay, public declarations. I find it surprising, really, that you know, someone of Ryan Tuberty's calibre status as a very prominent journalist, which he is, um, wouldn't have looked at the kind of publicly declared figures, you know, and seen the discrepancy there. So I think there are, there are questions for him. Um, and, you know, he, he'd be well used to um, putting it up to, to guests on his, on his radio show uh, on, and previously on, on The Late Late Show. And I, I would say this maybe is a time for further answers in relation to that. that that's all I'll say about that. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And the paranoia in RTE about its treatment at the hands of the political establishment, Jack, over years may be paranoia, but there may be some truth in it too. I mean, uh, my perception has always been, and you're closer to this than me, so you can tell me if it's true, is that politicians love kicking RTE, that the relationship between them, and maybe this is just, this just comes with the turf if you have a public service organisation funded by the state and they sometimes ask tough questions of politicians or just as bad don't cover what the politicians are doing that there's a natural animosity there and a desire to do them down to some extent yeah and look that in some ways is a is a reflection of the kind of natural animosity that does and should exist between uh, centres of power and those who are responsible for holding them to account and those who are responsible for for uh, covering them but I think that that relationship is um is more taught uh more because of you know first of all the fact that rt is a national broadcaster and secondly because of the power that rt has in terms of agenda setting i mean i think that you know the front page of the irish times is very influential in terms of the news agenda but i don't think anything is, is quite as 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 important as uh you know what rt chooses to, to cover on its bulletins um in in and in, in, in lunchtime and on hourly throughout the day so i think that that's part of the reason why politicians do pay more attention to RTE because it's the kind of beating heart of of you know the daily nature of political coverage and 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 reflects the kind of pressures that they are currently uh, coming under on a given issue or the pressures that they are likely to come under or the direction in which coverage is likely to evolve. I think RTE is probably on balance the most important influencer of that, um, and you know they 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 do have. A kind of at times hate hate relationship. Um, like I was talking to one former minister today, who I think accurately said that uh, you know this undermines RT's claim to the to the high moral ground which they are so fond of taking when they uh, when they question ministers. This person was also saying that um, 
you know, even to this day, as a former minister, they're they're saying even to this day they kind of get a bit a bit nervous if they're going down the Slogan Jill carriageway, wondering whether Mary Wilson is going to come out and grab them by the scruff of the collar and pull them in and ask them whether and interrogate them over whether they had pints last weekend. <laughs> that was the exact phrase that they use. So that that illuminates, I think, the nature of the relationship between the two. I like personally, as as a journalist, I think it's only right and proper the vast majority of 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 um, interrogation that gets offered the way of of ministers by RTE, but they carry baggage. And this and this same minister volunteered to me that you know there is an animus in Fine Gael towards RTE that dates mm. all the way back to a documentary they did about Michael Noonan in the run into the 2002 general election. And that because of that... I think you'll find it was a drama. A drama excuse actually. me, sorry. A drama that they did about Michael mm. Noonan in the run into the 2002 election. I mean, that may or may not be the case. That may or may not be germane to Fine Gael's perceived hostility to reform of the licence fee. But the very fact that these theories exist indicates the kind of nature of the kind of the, the 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 embedded relationship between those two big beasts of you know the the political discourse in Ireland well, I also add to that the fact that it's the most powerful media organisation in Ireland, Jen, but it's also the media organisation that's funded by the state. And regardless of rhetoric about arms length relationships and that, that sometimes leads to tensions because some arms of the state or some people who work for the state or some people in government, you know, underneath it all feel that RT should be working for them as public service, so-called public service broadcasters do and do in other countries, it should be said. And maintaining that that arm's length relationship can be tricky. We've had situations in the past where entire RTE authorities have been fired by government because government didn't like what RTE was doing. Yeah, and that's a tricky balance really, isn't it, for them? Um, and I think you're right as well to say, you know, in your previous question, you know, and it feeds into what you're asking there, are there politicians, I suppose, who are just ready to give RTE a kicking. I think actually, yes, there are plenty of politicians who are ready to give RTE a kicking. I think you're right. I think there are plenty of politicians who would agree with you that actually RTE should be working for them. It's it's, it's publicly funded, you know, uh, under the remit uh, of, uh, in certain ways, of of their, their purview. But I think realistically, there is, like Jack said, there's always going to be that tension, isn't there, really realistic between um, government um, and then, like Jack said, the people who are holding government to account. Really interesting thing to see what will happen will be where the conversation around the licence fee goes now. So we know we had Future of Media Commission uh, report and we know that there was recommendations, different recommendations in there around the reform of the licence fee and ultimately the government decided to, not to ignore those, but what they did was they kept it the same as it is now and they set up this, I go, for want of a better phrase, a, a smaller group um, which would look in particular at this issue and come back and revert to government. Now, I have been told that either a draft or an early version of that had landed with government. I've actually been trying to get my hands on it for the last couple of months. I, I've, I've, I've been asking kind of persistently for a copy or for a look or for a brief on it for the last 10 weeks and to no avail. So what happens now with that conversation around the licence fee? How much does this issue, scandal, controversy, uh, damage those talks? How mu- what impact will it have on the public perception of reform? Because I remember one of the recommendations in the future of Media Commission uh, arising from that was that it will be perhaps derived from taxation. I mean, how is that going to play out now? I, don't, I, I just don't know. So I think politically, uh, you know, there's a whole element there about the future funding of RTE. And because the trust, like I said, has been so fundamentally undermined. I just don't know if if we were going to see any kind of suggestions for a reform of the licence fee 
by at least by the end of this year, I, w- I would say that's very much in the back burner. No doubt that, that that successive ministers over many years and successive governments over years have, have grabbed at any opportunity to do nothing on this front. And it is a reality that something does need to be done because the reality is that RT, like a lot of other media organisations, but RT in particular, um, young people don't watch linear TV. Um, they don't really listen to radio very much. There's a demographic avalanche happening in media which the old model of public service broadcasting with Radio 1 and Radio 2 and two TV channels and this, that and the other, just, you know, it's a joke. You know, nobody pays any attention to that anymore. And the question of what you replace that old model with is 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 really profound and there's been a failure, in my view, of the political establishment to to, to address it in some kind of a coherent way. That, that report, which, um, which Jen referred to um, last year, I don't think anybody wanted what it recommended. RTE didn't want it. The politicians didn't like it. No Nobody wants broadcasting to be funded directly from taxation. Mm-hmm. So that served to stall things even uh, even further again. And it seems to me that the, the most important consequence ultimately of this thing is that RTE is going to be stuck in a perpetual loop of decline and decay even further than it would have been the case otherwise. Oh my God. Holy moly, Hugh. I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's context to that too, OK? Because if you remember when this conversation started... So if you go way back, you remember all the controversy around water charges. Everybody remembers that. I mean, it was a huge, huge political issue. Um, And, you know, it created kind of careers for politicians like PBP. You know, they came in on the back of that wave, um, anti-austerity. So there was this whole controversy around water charges. And I remember at the time I was working in the Irish Daily Mail at the time and we had it on the front page every day. And just in at the end of that controversy came this talk about a broadcasting charge broadcasting levy and I remember talking to politicians in the government at the time and they were like oh my god we have just got over the water charges scandal we are not having a conversation about a broadcasting levy and it was shelved at the time and now they don't want to call it that because you're because if you you're talking about non-linear you know you're, not everyone's going to have a television but if you're watching RT on your phone um, that's what it effectively be. So they're they're keen to call it anything other than a broadcasting charge but that's what it would be uh, and, and it's still politically it's still a very febrile atmosphere for that. Um, I mean, it's a little bit less febrile than after the water charges, but that's the context behind the reluctance, you know, politically. Well, we'll see how it pans out. I think Jack is right. I think this one's going to run and run. And while it runs and runs, you can continue to read all about it and listen all about it uh, on irishtimes.com. To do that in its full glory, though, you'll need to be a subscriber. And to become a subscriber, all you need to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. It's as easy as that. We'll be back after this. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And welcome back. Jen and Jack are still here. We were both touching on the fact that there's a lot of pain in the political establishment at things that RTE did to them in the past. And among those, uh, Jen, was the water charges and arguably the party that suffered most from that 
period in Irish politics was the Labour Party, which had an absolutely disastrous election in 2016 and shows no real signs of recovering. And you have a really interesting story uh, today about um, the Labour Party, I suppose, examining its conscience and trying to figure out how to move on from that disaster. Yeah, Orti fairly stole my thunder now, um, knocking me off the lead story on the on the front page. But yeah, so I heard that this report basically was in circulation for a while and I have been going out of my way to get my hands on it. Um, and, we, and we had a look at it, basically. So what it is effectively uh, is a look at the party's time in government, particularly what what was the context, political context? Why did they go into government? But super interesting for me is what, you know, them actually facing up to, to what went wrong. Um, it was kind of, it was initiated by the executive of the Labour Party, kind of around the time in between crossing over the leadership of Brendan Howland and Alan Kelly. Um, so this kind of came to being in around 2020. COVID got in the way of uh, the party being able to fully consider it. Then obviously Alan Kelly was ousted. And then when Ivana Bacha came in, there was a feeling in the party, I think, amongst her supporters of when we can't have this thing in circulation, this is going to be used as, you know, something to bash her across the head when she's only fresh in the job, give her a chance, basically. Uh, but I think they couldn't sit on it any longer. Um, and, you know, it doesn't hold back in parts queue. Like it, it's, I was kind of, often when you read these reports of parties looking into themselves, they just give themselves kind of a pat on the back and say, we did our best. And that's not really kind of what happened in, in, in this particular report. Like the, some of the key points were that they talked about that, how they broke the, the, the public trust or they failed to maintain trust with the public. I mean, a lot of people listening would be like, well, tell me something I don't know, you know, um, and they mishandled kind of key policy decisions. They ran badly judged publicity stunts. They agreed to legislation that was damaging to democracy and that's particularly in relation to town councils. Um, and yeah, like it, it it doesn't hold back. It goes right from the time of the bailout um, onwards and through key policy issues such as uh, changes to for, for lone parents um, in, in, in Tesco style ads. If you remember that infamous ad about every little hurts, six things the Fine Gael would do, which I'm pretty sure Labour and government Fine Gael went on to do all six of those things themselves, realistically. Um, and yeah, and, and, and it looks at all that. It looks at medical card eligibility, you know, around 2014. This was a huge political controversy because I remember there were kids who, you know, had like cerebral palsy who were having their medical cards taken off them. And it was, the government was being portrayed and was acting in a very callous manner, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, it doesn't hold back in, on their role in that as well, about how they could have undertaken this or gone about it in a way that didn't cause like tremendous worry and distress to, to thousands of, of people. And finally, what I would say is this issue of town councils, right? This comes up all the time when you're talking to people from Labour. They're still really, really sore about this. Um, so this was, so basically Labour had warned at the time that if you kind of abolish that, that it would weaken urban governments. Uh, and that's what happened. And the report says that Labour should not have agreed to this legislation um, because it was damaging to democracy. Um, now, I will say not the whole report is them beating themselves across the head. They are basically one of the gists of it is we took on the national interest. You know, we put ourselves second. We went into government and we did our best. And did we achieve what we wanted? Probably not. One of the other interesting points it makes is that it looks at the kind of the alternative history scenario in which it had been a Labour government 
and what that government would have done. And it kind of comes to the conclusion, am I right, that it would have ended up in the same trouble anyway? Yeah, it's really, <laughs> I thought this was very interesting. So talking about like under hypothetical, like you say, Labour government, what would they have done differently really? And they were saying that there would have been this greater emphasis on tax, Ireland's tax system, bringing it closer kind of to other European tax systems. Um, and that this in turn could have lessened the impact of cuts to welfare um uh, public sector jobs, cuts to wages, public services, all that kind of stuff. Um, because obviously, as we know, there was, you know, many, many budgets after the, the bailout and after the financial crash where hundreds of millions in every single department had to be cut. And the most, uh, like I said, one of the one of the most controversial elements of that often does come down to the um, people who are the hardest hit. You know, so you're talking about people who are on uh, welfare payments or loan parents we mentioned as well. But it did say, the report said even if they had done that and, and, and brought that closer to the European norm, it actually wouldn't have prevented austerity. Um, and that actually Labour would have been just as unpopular, just as unpopular on its own. <laughs> so... Jack, there's so much in that. So much in that. I wonder about the first one. Is it's obviously it sort of feels like ancient history. It's seven years since Labour got crushed in the in in the 2016 election, and they're still agonising with how to think about and how to approach that and how to tell that story. And the story still seems to be, to some extent, the reading Jen's piece, which is that we were stuck between a rock and a hard place and we did some good things by mitigating austerity. And the critique, which has been incredibly effective and which has led to their almost demise, not not quite, has been, no, you didn't, you collaborated in austerity. And we don't seem to have moved on from that. They still seem stuck there. Yeah, it's, the, it's another um, another chapter in the ongoing psychodrama of, of the Irish Labour Party. And <laughs> Like just to return to what Jen was talking about, it's such a strange thing to do, isn't it, in this report to imagine what a hypothetical Labour-led government would have done. It's such a waste of time. Like, <laughs> to what end, you know? Like, this is, this is like... Why not, Jack? Why not? Well, sure, why not any kind of form of fan fiction? But also, why? <laughs> More importantly, why? Um, and look, to be honest, reading Jen's uh, reporting on the report, it seems there's an awful lot of kind of, you know, well thought out insight and analysis in there um, in in this in this Labour Party report. So, you know, it's not to disregard the entire thing, but that does strike me as just such a peculiar thing to do in such a waste of time. But anyway, um, yes, look, the core problem here is that like Labour has never had a, a reckoning with its own past. And there are still different camps within the party um, as to whether it should have gone into government in 2011, whether it should have, whether it should have done what it did while it was in government, and whether at a remove now of what uh, seven years since they left government, uh, whether it's defensible. And I don't think that the party itself has agreed on that. And then to get further into the sublineages of this argument. There is a camp which says, none of that matters. Get on with it. That's the past is the past and we need to talk about the future. So why are we even spinning our wheels talking about this? And I think the reason that they're still kind of spinning their wheels is because the party has never recovered from the trauma of 2016. It's never explained to itself or understood for itself, you know, why it did what it did whether it's relevant to what it wants to do in the future and the, that how that applies to the broader question of what the, La the Irish Labour Party is all about and what its relevance is today, which is really the kind of, the really meaningful question that it, that it faces both in its own eyes and in the eyes of voters because it is just being squeezed within an inch of its life by other centre-left parties. And while people within Labour will 
repeat the refrain that the polling is better than it is at a headline level and our double number is better than a national number and all the rest of it. Like the fact of the matter is that they're vulnerable to Sinn Féin second seats next time out and they're vulnerable to the Social Democrats and the Greens Mm -hmm. and left-leaning independents in a way that I think could actually potentially leave them with fewer seats next time out and and you know that that existential challenge becoming even more sharply into focus for them um where does it uh, where does it leave them um i don't know i like my personal view is that it actually is probably important for them to arrive at a settled view of history and uh, not necessarily because um voters care about it because i think they're probably right in that you know if they're able to articulate a, a vision of the future in the present that's more relevant to voters but just for themselves just to have a, a consensus settled view of of you know that's what that part of our history was about here's how it's relevant to us now um because and sorry and, and I, I do also think it is important to some voters as well like i thought it was peculiar that Ivana Bacic, when she was uh, the leadership candidate, the only leadership candidate, was saying that, you know, Labour pulled back Ireland from the brink. And uh, within that that short soundbite is, is, is no acknowledgement of, you know, the damage that austerity did uh, to Ireland. Now, I know there's an argument that it was necessary damage and all the rest of it, but I think objectively and empirically, uh, austerity politics and policies were, were damaging. Um, where does it leave us? Where does it leave the Labour Party? Where does it where does it leave the future for them? I'm not sure, but I certainly want to see all the rest of the report, particularly particularly the, I'll the, send it particularly to you. the middle parts. The <laughs> Jen's reporting made reference to the middle parts, which are particularly contentious mm-hmm. and subject to legal advice, including yes. interviews with former ministers and their advisors. I'd like to see that. Yeah, this you is, want to see the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is, is a very contentious part. Yeah, this is this is going to cause some problems. I. I will, well, I will have more news for you in that front soon. Oh, great. We do, we, do, we do look forward to that. But there is a thing that always strikes me about this as they, yeah, as, as Labour twist themselves around and around. This. I mean, one thing is that I don't see Fianna Fáil doing the same uh, to, 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 to the same extent, or at least not at quite such self-flagellatory kind of a, a length. The other one is just from a, a, a sort of a real politic, pragmatic retail politics point of view. It strikes me that the best thing that the party could have done at some point, because it's been through a couple of leaders now since this happened, was just to uh, to find a leadership that came from the left and just came straight forward out and said, this was a terrible mistake and we've learned from it. We'll never do it again. We shouldn't have done it. You've often seen that with parties that got trenched at the polls in the past. And even if it wasn't entirely honest, I think it would have been more effective. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, it's one of the things that's kind of always... My brain, my mind was boggles when I think about it because for me it's the basics, you know, actually facing up to reality because it is reality and you know people have not forgiven the Labour Party and that's not me giving you my hypothesis. That's borne out in the polls and in the number of seats they have in the doll. Um, and I think there's a huge faction within the Labour Party. Not everybody. There's a divide here. There's a huge faction who are pushing, pushing for party leadership to do exactly what you said. Um, but then there's a lot of resistance to that. There's a lot of people in there who think we did many good things, you know, in, 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 in government and particularly in relation to social change. And nobody can take that away from the Labour Party or, or the achievements that they've had down through the decades, I should say. Um, but I would say one really interesting thing to watch here will be the local elections next year, because what I'm told the feeling in the party now is if they are disastrous, well, some people really expect them to be. If they are, you know, and by the way, there's people in the Labour Party who tell you they've really exciting candidates coming up and I would believe that entirely. But there are also people who think it could be disastrous. If it is, 
if there's a catastrophe, I genuinely think that Ivana Bacic will be in serious trouble. I think there will be a push from within for a new lead, a new leader. I think there are people in there who are already eyeing that up um, and who maybe think they could do a better job. And those people, I'd say, would be the first out of the traps to say, we got this wrong. We messed this up. We are sorry. Will you forgive us? Here's how we're going to do things differently in the future. So that's one to watch. Name names, Jen. I will in future, but I'm going to keep my counsel for today because I'm in enough trouble with people. Okay, well, we'll watch this space. Now, at this time of the week, we like to pick articles that we've read that we thought, you know, we'd like to recommend to our listeners because we thought they were particularly good. You were reading a column by uh, by Seamus O'Reilly, Jack. Yeah, this column by Seamus O'Reilly uh, talks about uh, living in... Dublin in his 20s and the fact that and I think James Ray is about the same age as me so we were probably living in Dublin in our 20s at the same time and the fact that he kind of self-censored when it came to talking about the North about being from Northern Ireland about what it meant to be Northern and more specifically uh, talking about the Troubles and uh, it resonated with me to, to, to a large degree because um, I'm kind of of that generation of, of Southerners that kind of post Good Friday generation for whom I suspect uh, the the saliency of of the North um, was greatly diminished after Good Friday and kind of didn't make up part of, of, um, you know, my early kind of political life or, you know, political awareness. Uh, And, you know, in in recent years, as, uh, you know, I've become more aware of of Northern politics and particularly after Brexit, when it's become more relevant and uh, less uh, and, and more fragile, I think, again, um, I've, you know, felt a little bit myself that it's, it's it's shameful the extent to which my generation weren't engaged in the topic of, of Northern Ireland. Um, and last year I read uh, Place Apart by Dervla Murphy and, and that was kind of um, an important, you know, jumping off point for me to start thinking about the North a little bit more as well. And I think that, that because the relationships north and south and east and west is going to be kind of one of the it's going to be one of the things for my 40s i think defining the the future of those relationships um with i think i think that that's that's important for people of my generation to do and i think that effectively what he's calling out is is the fact that southerners um you know displayed a bit of a disinterest a haughtiness and a bit of an arrogance about about northern ireland uh, and dismissed it, and uh, you know, I think that you know we need to acknowledge that within a, as as a as a failing with our own within our own political discourse. Certainly, that's my own personal view, and I think that 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 piece today kind of helped me help me think about that. Yeah, I think you're right. James, who's a great writer, he's, he's originally from Derry, as you say, he lived in Dublin in his 20s. He now lives, I think, in London or in the UK anyway. And one of the interesting points I think he made was that people in the UK were more interested when he started talking about this stuff than people who lived down the road from uh, from Northern Ireland in Dublin. I, I also think it's not just a question of your post-Good Friday um, generation, Jack. I would have experienced similar things myself as well, even more so maybe during the Troubles that people just put their hands over their ears and didn't want to hear about it. It's all part of that partitionist mentality which is there under the surface and which some of our opinion polls on this subject revealed some some parts of I think before Christmas. Jen what was your article? Um, yeah so if I'm ever in a bad mood which is frequently no if I'm ever in a bad mood I always go and read Miriam Lord's columns and sketches because she's one of the few people who can actually make me laugh out loud when I read her columns she's just fantastic but she had a piece this week um, about something we talked about on the podcast actually on Wednesday about the hate speech bill and her piece was very funny like the headline is Minister reassures anxious senators that people will retain absolute right 
to be thoroughly obnoxious. Um, so this was the debate that started, obviously, uh, it, you know, starts in the in the doll and she was making the point, usually things become contentious and sparks start flying as soon as it, go, it goes, it enters the Oireachtas. But, and by the time it gets to the Shannon, it's completely petered out. And that's not what happened because the, the, this uh, Shannon debate was this week and there was a lot of, there were many, many uh, senators who were, some of them expressing really, really good points, genuine concerns. A lot of them saying they've never got so many emails from people uh, as they have about this. And like I said, we talked about it earlier in the week. Um, and yeah, I just thought that line was very funny, that you can retain your absolute right, you can be thoroughly obnoxious, carry on saying horrible, hateful things for as long as you want, even after this bill becomes law. So that's just super reassuring for half of Twitter. <laughs> and for me too, I'm, I for one, I'm, I'm also very reassured to to hear that, and not just on, not just on Twitter either. Uh, I'm picking uh, a jointly written article by Patrick Frayne and Una Malali. It's a big read, which is up on the website now, and I think will be in the Saturday magazine tomorrow. And it traces the history of Pride, the march in Dublin, back to not quite its first days, but pretty much um, it really kind of kicks off in the early 80s, but it refers back to some of the events in the early 70s as well. And it reminds you of the uh, the, the the prejudice and the difficulties and the sense of fear which people in Dublin um, faced at that point if their sexual or- orientation didn't conform to what was regarded as being the norm. And, and I think it's fair to say uh, how far we've come since then. But it's also a great piece of writing and there's great personal testimonies and eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of, of various prides over the years. So well worth reading. I would recommend that to our listeners. Now, we will leave that there for today then. Um, I'm off on my holidays, so I'm going to bid you, Jen, and and you, That's Jack, so cool. uh, goodbye. That's so Jack's cool. making a... Jack, not fair. Jack's making a be, face at me. Yeah, you can be, say something obnoxious to me now. Like you're allowed, uh, you're, you're allowed to say something obnoxious to me. You go sunning me. yourself with an Aperol spritz, Hugh. You deserve I it. I don't know. I think I'll actually be sitting in the rain in Donegal, but um, we'll, we'll see how that part of it goes. Aperol spritz is in Donegal. <laughs> it's okay. Well, I know the forecast isn't great. We'll see how we go. You can definitely get an Aperol spritz it's made, there. It's made with a football special, though. <laughs> oh God, that's that's a good, that's a good, that's a grim thought. We will anyway leave it there. Thanks to Jan and Jack. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. Somebody else, I think, Patley, he will be sitting in for me next week. But we shall see about that. We'll wait with bated breath. I'll be back in a week or so. Until then, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>